making our way back. That would be excellent, excellent. For everybody who's a visitor this morning, welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the pastor here at Be Free Alton, and we are so glad you're here. Good to see you, man. Yeah. So welcome, welcome here this morning. I know John shared with you just a minute ago that him and his friend Pete were teaching the entire Old Testament, 39 books, in two weeks. I'm going to do one chapter today. I'm going to try to, not nearly able to do that. But that's what we're doing today, one psalm together. Psalm 112. So if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, please turn it over to Psalm 112. This is a beautiful psalm. This is an amazing psalm. This week was a blessing for me to dive into this psalm. Uh, but it's a psalm that we have to look at a little bit differently than other psalms. Because in fact, the way that we read the psalm fits a little bit better in the Proverbs, actually. This psalm is a wisdom psalm. That's the type of psalm that, it's it, that it is. So when we read it, we have to read it for what it is. A psalm that presents a wisdom principle. And when we read a proverb, what we do is we read these, these, these words that they're not necessarily promises, but principles. So for instance, Proverbs 15.22 tells us, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Now that's true sometimes, but it's not a promise. I could get bad advice and my plans could fail. I could get good advice and ignore it. Or I could get good advice and take that good advice, but still extenuating circumstances could make my plans fail. That's because these proverbs, they're, they're not promises, they're principles. They tell us how things ought to happen in a properly ordered world, but they're not universal truths without exception. So when we look in Psalm 112, we're finding a wisdom principle. And it's an amazing wisdom principle. It's a wisdom principle that teaches us what the life and the heart of the blessed man looks like. What does it take to be a blessed person? What's the key to having a blessed life? That's an amazing promise. And this isn't, or this is an amazing principle. But this isn't a prosperity presentation. We know that life doesn't, I know, I'm sorry Pete, I know. Life doesn't always work that way. But what it teaches us is how we have a blessed life. And this word blessed, it actually, in the Hebrew, it's the word happy. They're the same word. There's not some deep spiritual meaning to the word blessed, not in this passage at least. It's talking about a happy life. Having a happy heart before the Lord. How do we do that? And so that's what we're looking this morning. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 112. What we're going to see in Psalm 112, in verse 1, is we're going to see the heart of a blessed person. We're going to see the heart of a happy person. Secondly, we're going to see, in verses 2 through 9, the life of the blessed man. The life of the blessed person. And then finally, in verse 10, we're going to see the opposite of the blessed person. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to pause and pray. So let me read it for you. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends. 
who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come here this morning to do what we do as your people. Worship you. And glorify you, Lord. And Lord, while you, you saved us because of your amazing love for us, and you saved us knowing that we as your people were meant to worship you, to give you the glory that you, that you deserve, Lord. That we as your people, as we receive your love, would do, we wouldn't be able to help but turn around and praise you and glorify you and worship you. So we pray, Lord, as we look at this passage today, you would be glorified. And I pray, Lord, that as we worship you and look at this passage today, we would be encouraged to draw deeply in this life from your love, from your glory, to find the joy that's to be found in you, in your name alone. God, if there's anything on our hearts this morning, any distractions, wipe those away. If our minds are focused on what's coming this afternoon or tomorrow or this week, Lord, wipe those things away. If I say anything today that's not from you, that's not true, Lord, I am sorry. Wipe those things away. But I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be tender and soft to hear your truth this morning, Lord. We give this time to you. We ask that you'd move. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 1. Join me there. This is the heart of the blessed man. Here we go. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. This first verse, it's short, but it is powerful. This first verse, we could do a full sermon series on. We could go months on this verse. And the reason I say that is because in these couple words, we find two of the major themes of the Psalms and the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord and delighting in his commands. And the thing is, even though these two ideas are so powerful, both of these ideas are very foreign to us. We don't easily, naturally understand what it means to fear the Lord. That, fe that, that seems foreign to us. We don't naturally and easily understand what it means to delight in his commandments. Aren't, aren't commandments rules? Aren't those laws? What does that mean? We're going to take some time right at the beginning because it's really important for the Christian life and for this passage to understand these two ideas. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to delight in his commands? So let's take them one by one. Number one, fear the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Very often when we come to this idea in scripture, fearing the Lord, we do one of two things. We either jump past it, read on. Or we say, oh, okay, fearing the Lord. That's kind of more like a reverence for the Lord, right? We almost seem to dismiss it in that way. And I say dismiss it not because that's not true. That is really what the fear of the Lord is. It's, it's a reverent awe for what he is. But I feel like when we do that, when we say that fear is just reverence, 
we lose sight of the fact that, there's, that fear is a true trembling. There's a true quaking before the Lord. And in our minds, we have a hard time intellectually grasping what it means. But I feel like when we feel it, we understand it. Because I think there's one realization at the core of what it means to fear the Lord. And I hope that I can explain this in a way that you will understand. Because I know that if you've felt it, you know what I mean. So let me, let me, let me try here. <laughs> the fear of God is rooted in this one key realization. That when people see God in his greatness, in his glory, in his majesty, in his transcendence, seeing that he is better and more holy and more powerful than anything they have ever seen, they look at him and are struck with this realization, oh my God, I am nothing like you. That's the root of the fear of the Lord. You see how different he is. You see how transcendent and holy he is. And you just sit here and think, I am not. That's the root of the fear of the Lord. And like I said before, this fear is hard to understand. It's hard to understand why we would rejoice in fear. But doesn't it just make sense that you would see the most glorious thing in the universe and be blown away with the goodness of it? Be blown away with the truth that this most glorious being in the entire universe loves you and delights, but at the same time just be so humbled in its presence. That's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord goes hand in hand with a love of the Lord. The two can't be separate. And while that's so foreign to us, it's at the root of how we need to interact with the God of the universe. It's a beautiful beautiful truth that we can't miss. So maybe I should say it like this. In my own life, um, I've experienced this, that the more I grasp his excellencies, the more I savor his excellencies. The more I grasp how amazing he is, the more I delight in how awesome he is. And the more I bubble over and delight and joy and awestruck, reverent fear of how good and glorious he is. That's a lifelong process of learning and growing and seeing and fearing and loving the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what it means to fear God. My favorite verse in all of the Psalms that gets to the heart of this passage is actually Psalms 2 verse 11 that says this, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I mean, doesn't that just prove we don't grasp it? When you read that psalm, it sounds wrong. It sounds like, it sounds like, wait, doesn't perfect love drive out fear? Don't we read that in the book of Hebrews? But this is a different thing. This is a delightful fear. This is a joyful quivering. This is a happy trembling. So that's the first thing we see in this passage. And if you don't wrap your mind around it, that's okay, because you're a human. (laughs) Hold on to that. Find hope there. But still, pray for it and seek it. Prayerfully seek understanding this joyful quivering before the Lord. So that's the first thing. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, and the second one, who greatly delights in his commandments. Delights in his commandments. That's hard for us also, isn't it? Commands are rules. Commands are laws. It's not a typical place to find delight. 
I can't imagine that lawyers are poring over their law books just weeping with joy. And I doubt that very many of you woke up this morning to read Leviticus and cry out with joy to God. They don't, it doesn't make sense to us naturally, right? So how do we delight in the commandments? The key to this passage is the fact that we are delighting in his commandments. These aren't just laws. These aren't just rules. These are laws. These are rules that come from him. That flow directly out of our God. The God we love and fear and worship. The key to understanding what it means to delight in his commandments isn't just what it says, but who says it. That's the key to understanding what it means to delight in God's commandments. Because God's word, all of it, even the law, flows out of him. And then this is the key. This is the key, I believe. If we can rejoice in his words, in his commands, sorry, yes, let me say that again. We can rejoice in his words and in his commands because he is the good, good God. And the good, good God who can only be good gives good laws for his people's good. Let me say that sentence again. The good, good God who can only be good gives good laws for his people's good. If that's true, we should delight in that. They're meant to protect us, to lead us, to help us know how to live our lives. A good God who can only do good gives good laws for his people's good. That's like a good father. A good father gives good rules for his children's good. They might not see it. They might not like it. But God is the good, good father gives good laws for his people's good. And so as we look throughout the Old Testament, we find passage after passage after passage of the Old Testament people of God worshiping God because of his commands. Two examples, Psalm 119 is just a marathon of praise for God's word, for God's commands and his laws. In verse 97 of that, of that psalm, it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Again, Psalm 1, verse 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is the man who's like a tree planted by streams of water, constantly drawing life from God, from his word, from his law. He delights, he meditates, he joyfully deliberates over it. He merrily muses on it. He cheerfully chews upon the word of God. He spends time soaking in the word of God and is satisfied. That's what it looks like to delight in the word, delight in the law of God. And the good God who can only be good gives good laws for his people's good. Blessed, happy is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Don't you see how rich that verse is? That's verse 1. So we're going to go a little bit quicker from this point forward. But if we could boil down verse 1, it focuses on the heart of the blessed and happy man. What it shows um, is that this man joyfully quivers before his good, good God. And this man delights in the words, the laws, the commands of his good, good God. In other words, the heart of a happy, blessed man is characterized by a proper fear and delight in God's commands. 
the heart of a blessed man, happy man and woman, is characterized by a proper fear of God and delight in his commands. Now we're going to move on to verses 2 through 9. 2 through 9. Because verse 1 shows us the heart of the blessed and happy man. But verses 2 through 9 describe the life of the blessed, happy man. So let me read that for us. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Wow. <laughs> These passages, it's just, it's just a list. He is listing thing after thing after thing after thing that characterizes the life of the blessed, happy man. Right? It kind of walks you into a trap because yes and no. It is a list. It is a list of all the things that characterize the life of the blessed and happy man. But there's something about this passage that's extremely pointed. That is not necessarily a list, but one thing in long form, you might say. And this is a little bit complicated, but let me try to tell you, show you what I mean. If you remember back to the beginning of this series, we were talking about poetry as a whole, right? And how English poetry has a certain form, has a certain function to it. The English poetry is characterized by meter and rhyme and rhythm and things like this. So English poetry, when we read it, it sounds like this. Return, return, O wayward son, for self-starvation's remedy. Delight, delight, for full am I of tonic of thine revelry. There's this rhythm. There's this rhyme. And the rhythm and the rhyme are used to communicate a beauty that goes beyond the mere meaning of the words. They're tools to communicate this beauty. That's not true in Hebrew. Hebrew uses different tools. The tools in Hebrew aren't rhythm, aren't rhyme and meter. Hebrew tools are symbolism, symbolic language, and structure. Earlier we talked about parallelism, that that's a structure that brings out the beauty. But in this passage, in Psalm 112, if we're going to get to the heart of what's being said in these eight verses, we have to see the structure of these eight verses. So if you look at the screen with me, I'll try to go through this pretty quickly. I'm going to read through the passage again. And as I do, follow along with these titles here. I just drew words out of the passage. So follow along with me up here. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. That's A. Mighty, blessed, wealthy. His righteousness endures forever. B. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. C. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. D. 
trusting in the Lord, E. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries, D. He has distinguished freely, sorry, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor, C. His righteousness endures forever, B. His horn is exalted in honor, A. Do you see the structure here? Do you see the beauty of this? That there is this parallelism that goes on in here. That A goes together with A. B goes together with B. And so on. A goes together with A to communicate that the blessed, happy man is mighty. He's exalted. B goes together with B to emphasize that the blessed, happy man is righteous and will endure. C goes together with C to show that the blessed, happy man is compassionate and generous. D goes together with D to show that the blessed, happy man is firm, steady, unmoving. And right in the middle, E is the heart of everything. Trusting in the Lord. In English, we save the best for last, right? When we have a list, we put the very last thing, the most important thing at the very end. It's really communicating, just wait, better things are coming, right? There's, there's this forward pointing element in English. But for the Hebrews, they would save the best for the middle. They took the center idea and put it in the middle. They put the central idea right where it belongs, and all of it points in towards the central idea. Everything around the central idea frames the central idea. And what we see in this structure is that the middle thing, trusting in the Lord, gives shape and color to everything that comes around it. Isn't that a beautiful structure? Isn't that a beautiful thing? So here in this passage, what's it teaching us? What is the structure even helping teach us? I think it's teaching us that the central element that describes and defines the blessed life, the central element of a life rightly ordered, the central element that describes a blessed man, a happy man, is that he trusts in the Lord. That it's his trust in the Lord that helps all of these other things come to be. Everything around it points to that truth. And this long list of blessings on either side of that central element, that central idea, is the result of that trust. It colors all of it. So, trust in the Lord. Because the Lord will establish you, A. Trust in the Lord, because he will make you righteous, B. Trust in the Lord, because he will help you live a life of compassion and generosity, C. Trust in the Lord, because he will make you steadfast, D. In other words, the life of the blessed, happy man is characterized by a life of trust in the Lord. So, fo- so far, what we've seen is the heart of a blessed man and the life of a blessed man. That the heart of a blessed man is characterized by a po- proper fear and delight in his commands. And the life of a blessed man is characterized by a trust in the Lord. And now very briefly in the final verse, we're going to see the opposite of a blessed man. Let's go there together, verse 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desires of the wicked man will perish. 
Here in this last verse, the writer simply flips it on its head to further describe what the life of the blessed man is. He sees the opposite. So basically, the blessed man delights in the commands of the Lord, while the wicked man sees his delight and is angry, gnashes his teeth. The blessed man has an enduring, confident security, verse 6 and 7, while the wicked man melts away. The blessed man's righteousness endures forever, verse 3 and 9, while the wicked man uh, while the desires of the wicked man will perish. This last verse simply continues to support and prove what we've already seen in the rest of the passage. And that's where the passage ends. So let's zoom out here. We've seen a description of the life and the heart of the blessed man. Verse 112 is telling us that the key to the blessed, happy man or woman is that they have a heart characterized by a proper fear of God and delight in his commandments and a life characterized by trust in him. In this wisdom psalm, that's the wisdom principle it's teaching. That they have a blessed life, have a heart, a fearful delight in God and his commands and a life characterized by trust in him. And I want to argue that this wisdom principle is the same today as it was all the way back when Psalm 112 was written. That when we have a heart characterized by a proper fear of God, delight in his commands, when we have a life characterized by trust in him, specifically a trust in Jesus' redeeming work, the Spirit's empowering work, and the God's leadership over us and over the Godhead, that we will be blessed, we will be happy, we will have the joy of the Lord. But I want to be clear about what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that we won't suffer. The Bible tells us very clearly we will suffer. That doesn't mean that everything will go well for us. It doesn't mean that our plans will succeed. It doesn't mean that we won't get sick. It doesn't mean that we won't lose people we love. The joy of the Lord doesn't mean that we're going to have a perfect life. Remember, this is a wisdom principle. But what it does mean is that for him whose joy is in the Lord, our joy is not found in our circumstances that change and shift with the wind. Our joy is found in a God who has never and will never change. That God is the source of that joy. Therefore, in a very real and very true way, our suffering cannot wipe out our joy. And you might be hearing that and you might say, well, that's nice. But I mean, how do you live that? It's nice principle. It's nice to think that the joy of the Lord just simply trumps everything. But is that even possible? And by way of illustration or application, I want to share two examples with you. Two examples of people who have experienced profound suffering and have modeled supreme joy in the Lord. And you know both of them. The first one is a man named the Apostle Paul. Paul knew suffering. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 27, he lists the suffering in his life. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. He goes on and on and on. He goes even further than this passage here. 
But the thing is, he talks about his sufferings at other places in his writings. Actually, a number of times he brings up his sufferings. And listen to the way he talks about his sufferings. This is Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed for us. Again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, he says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul looked at his sufferings, and though they were so very real, he found that when he compared them to the glory to be found in Christ, they somehow lost their sting. They somehow lost their power in comparison. In fact, he says that all things, both good and bad, he considers lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord, Philippians 3.8. In suffering, Paul found so much joy, so much delight, so much happiness in God himself, that in comparison to the abundant joy and delight of being in Christ, the sufferings of this world seemed like light, momentary afflictions. Paul's example here that he teaches us is that in suffering, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I mean, but you hear that and you think, well, great, Ben. You were going to give us an example and you told us about the Apostle Paul. It's not really fair. But we have another example. In fact, I'm sure that if you think about it in your own life, you could think of a lot of other examples. But in the life of our church, we've had a really good example very recently, haven't we? When Matt Locke passed away a number of months ago, he gave us this example of what joy and suffering look like. At the end of his life, uh, we, we kept on hearing stories uh, sent back from the hospital, sent back from the hospice home, telling us about how Matt, as he was lying on his deathbed, would, say, would be saying things <laughs> to his doctors like, if I got cancer for no other reason than to tell you about Jesus, it would have been totally worth it. That on his deathbed, as he was laying there, even when he could barely talk, he would be saying to himself, without him even knowing anybody else was in the room, thank you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. Matt modeled for us what it looked like to find joy even in the midst of profound suffering, suffering that ultimately took his life. And one of the boys at the memorial service um, told this story of Matt. Uh, Matt had a, um, he had written a list of things he was thankful for. And this list he, he wrote as he was on his deathbed. It was right near the end of his life. And this list of things had, had seven, I believe, reasons why he was thankful, why he was joyful. And the bottom one, it said, I'm thankful for my cancer. Because God is using it. He was so focused on God that in the face of his cancer, he still found joy, still was able to delight in it because he saw that the one in whom he found his highest joy had a purpose in it. And I was watching him and I was just thinking, if I could be half as faithful in my suffering, that's success. Matt modeled for us what it looked like in our suffering to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. 
how the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. For us, when we have a heart characterized by a proper fear of God and delight in his commandments, when we have a life characterized by a trust in him, specifically in the work of Jesus, the continued work of the Holy Spirit and the Father, then we will have an abundant life that starts right now. Because we find our highest joy in God himself, the God who will never change, the God who is over all things. We find our deepest delight in him and his word, the source of all truth. We find a confident hope through our trust in him, in the Lord. And we find every joy, every delight, every blessing in him, his person, and the hope of his glory. And even in our sufferings, we can find joy, suffering, by focusing on him. The key to the blessed life is the same today as it was when Psalm 112 was written. Having a heart characterized by a proper fear and delight in God and his word. And a life characterized by a trust in him. And how do we do that? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your truth is powerful in the fact that it came from you, Lord. And what a glorious thing, Lord, (laughs) that you have given us this source of happiness. You have given us access to you, the source of all happiness. You have given us your word in which we can delight. You have given us your son, Jesus Christ. You sent Jesus because of your great love for us to pay for our sin, to redeem us to die the death that we deserved and live so that we could live the life that only you deserve, Lord. If we think of reasons to find joy in you, Lord, the list would be endless. So, Lord, do not let us, your people, cease to see the endless reasons to find joy in you. And, Father, I pray that even more so in times of suffering and trial. That when things are going down around us in the ways that we do not want them to go. When we see the world is ordered in the way that it was not supposed to be, Lord. Remind us that you are over it. That you are good and powerful over it. And remind us that we can turn and find joy in those circumstances by remembering that you are the God over that and everything else, Lord. We give you the glory that you deserve. We pray that you would delight in our praise today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.